Russia is trying to break the will of the Ukrainian people. You you don't want to fight on top of a ticking time bomb. Uh, and that's what I think is, is tricky and the reason why Russia has this sort of convenient position there. Hello, everybody. You are listening to the audio podcast Ukraine Decoded. My name is Viktor Kovalenko. I am from the United States. As a former Ukrainian journalist and veteran, I organize expert discussions to help Ukraine informationally. We talk about the Russian war, Eastern Europe, geopolitics, security, diplomacy and history. My guest today is Dr. J. Andres Gannon from New York City. He is an American expert in international security and currently a Stanton Nuclear Security Fellow at the one of the oldest in America think tanks, the Council of Foreign Relations. We are going to talk about Russian nuclear threats and other nuclear security challenges caused by the ongoing war against Ukraine. Dr. Gannon, did you expect that Vladimir Putin will escalate its desire to return control over independent Ukraine to the point of the full-scale war? Yeah, I think the the escalation was largely unexpected, just given what we saw in 2014. Uh, it seemed at the time that Russia sort of had these goals of possibly getting some territory, maybe some political goals. But Russia was only willing to use limited means to get it. Uh, so at the time, Russia was using, you know, the little green men that were sent as a sort of unofficial, this is not actually a Russian occupation, uh, cyber attacks, misinformation, and it largely seemed limited to those capabilities. So I think what surprised a lot of people was an escalation in the intensity of military and non-military actions that Russia was willing to do. And it really wasn't until November, December of 2021 that military analysts started seeing, you know, mobilizations and sort of movements of, of military personnel in ways that started signaling that that the status quo might change. Um, so I think before then it was quite unexpected. And around that time was the, the first time that we saw signs that sort of made the actions of February seem in hindsight predictable. Did you expect that the Ukrainian military will be capable to thwart the Russian invasion, turn the tide and begin liberating the occupied territories? Uh, so I think Ukraine has done incredibly well strategically. I think they have exceeded expectations that a lot of folks had regarding how well they would be able to put up resistance. Uh, part of that, I think, comes from a larger supply of Western arms and capabilities that Russia didn't anticipate. Uh, but I think a lot of credit also goes to the Ukrainians themselves that have done a, a really excellent job uh, tactically uh, managing the area geographically in terms of training morale. They've done a, a really great job of not being broken. Uh, so I think a lot of places where Russia expected to have a, a quicker advance for places where, uh, you know, we know that the offense is always harder in a lot of these conflicts. They say you need three times as many offensive soldiers as, as defensive soldiers as sort of a general rule of thumb. Uh, and even though Russia had that with fewer personnel, uh, Ukraine has, has done very well on the defensive. Uh, so I think that combination of external support and just a, a really well-run military uh, are things that have helped Ukraine a lot. Dr. Gannon, what is your opinion about the capabilities of the Russian military, as this war is revealing many interesting things that we didn't expect? 
Yeah, I think people are also surprised or sort of underwhelmed at the effectiveness of the Russian military. And I think that there's two components of that. The first is uh, materially, we're sort of seeing the effects of having a lot of old equipment uh, and having less equipment that we than we anticipated. Uh, so the recent sort of flurry that we saw a week or two ago of Russia, Russia launching a bunch of missiles, that was surprising because there was a long delay or a pause in that we largely think because Russia is running low on this, this conventional ammunition. And part of that is the effect that sanctions will have on that in the sort of medium to long term. Uh, but it's also, you know, one of the, the odd downsides of Russia not really having fought a lot of wars overseas in recent years is a lot of this equipment is, is sort of old. And uh, that relates to the second factor, which is just the, the personnel training uh, doesn't seem to be sort of what a lot of people anticipated or expected. There's a lot more evidence of defections than people thought, the sort of new personnel that had joined as a result of the, the partial conscription effort are, are not fighting particularly well. There's problems with supply chains. And so I think that Russia uh, emphasized, at, at least in terms of uh, what they wanted to convey, but I think also in reality, a lot of what we call sort of the, the tip of the spear, uh, you know, things that look very impressive militarily as far as equipment and whatnot, but there's a lot of back-end logistics that go into making sure that these things are effective. Uh, and I think that's something where it seems that Russia hasn't hadn't invested in, in ways that were necessary. Let's change gears and talk about nuclear security. Russia is a global nuclear power. It has a huge arsenal of strategic and tactical nuclear weapons. In this war, Russia began using its nuclear arsenal as a leverage against Ukraine and the West, however, without detonation of any bomb yet. The Kremlin wants to keep the Western countries away and force them to stop helping the victim. Among recent examples of the game of brinkmanship are phone calls by the Russian defense minister about a dirty bomb. What is your opinion about these Russian tactics? Yeah, I think you're right that part of the nuclear brinkmanship is Russia thinking what are sort of the next... Uh, um, you know, steps on the ladder that exist. And I don't think we're at the nuclear one quite yet. I think that there's a few steps in between there. But you're right that Russia's trying to look at what are ways that we can increase the intensity of our actions in Ukraine and in ways that will help us. Uh, and so I think the sort of recent dirty bomb accusations are ways that Russia is seeking a justification uh, for making their actions seem like a reaction as opposed to they're the ones that are starting the, or initiating that escalation dynamic. The nuclear brinkmanship is a dangerous game. How the West should react to this? Should we escalate in return? It's really tricky because, you know, there, Ukraine is not a, a formal treaty ally of the United States or NATO. And so promises there, I think, have have a lot of, of difficulty. Uh, I think what we sort of have learned from historical experiences is sort of ways that red lines can be communicated, which is what the West can do is be very, very clear about what constitutes unacceptable escalation but be ambiguous about what the consequence of that would be. Uh, and so I think when we hear uh, Ukraine or sorry, Russia and Putin making claims about alleged nuclear use, make very clear the type of nuclear use that's unacceptable is that 
any detonation anywhere? Is that a detonation in Ukraine, et cetera, but allow some wiggle room for the type of reaction that the West will do? Because I think that's going to depend on a lot of factors like sort of domestic will in, in European countries and in America, uh, what we sort of think would help, the timeline for responding. Um, and so I think that's the point that we have to be at and also just make sure that there's still communication that's happening behind the scenes by these leaders, by NATO and Russia to just make sure that we're still talking to each other. I think it's something that we we tend to forget happens during these conflicts is there's a lot of back channeling going on. Uh, and historically, we know that that plays a really important role in, in making sure that actors know each other's intentions as best they can. For the first time in history, two nuclear power plants were occupied this year by the invading Russian army. I am talking about the largest in Europe, Zaporizhia plant and the famous Chernobyl plant that is now defunct. Russians quickly left Chernobyl in April because their attack on capital Kyiv failed. But Ukraine is still facing a great challenge – how to liberate the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant. It is very dangerous to launch fighting for the nuclear facility because any damage to reactors may cause a catastrophe. Yeah, I, I agree. It's really difficult. You you don't want to fight on top of a ticking time bomb. Uh, and that's what I think is is tricky and the reason why Russia has this sort of convenient position there. I think there's not a lot that the West can do right now other than, you know, peacefully through things like the IAEA and civilian channels, ensuring that there's emergency fuel for the power plants in the event that, you know, when these regular shutoffs that are happening every couple of days occur, that uh, you know, the, the plant can still run in ways that don't cause a meltdown. And other than that, just sort of wait. Uh, there's this weird way in which Russia also wants these places to be stable in sort of a security and safety sense. I don't think they want radiation or, you know, a nuclear meltdown or something like that happening, given the unpredictability of uh, sort of that fallout in a, a geographic or environmental sense. Um I think what Russia wants from these power plants is economic leverage and political leverage. You know, there's a lot about how Russia is trying to break the will of the Ukrainian people through these recent bombings and uh, civilian areas and in cities that were happening last week. And the economic part is big. Uh, and, you know, these power plants are more than 25 percent of all the electricity that's provided to Ukraine. And so shutting that off for even hours, days at a time in Russia's mind can do a lot to break the will of the Ukrainian people. So I think that's their first goal. I think their second goal is you know, after the collapse of the Soviet Union, uh, there was a lot of Western upgrades that were made to these nuclear power plants that Russia, I think, just wants it from a technological perspective. And so I think a reason why they're doing things like host or, you know, holding the scientists hostage here is they want to learn some things about how these power plants operate and steal some of that technology, uh, which is hard to do and time consuming, but potentially has a high payoff. Uh, and so I think that's an underappreciated goal of, of Russia with how they're holding some of these plants hostage. Dr. Gannon, is it correct to compare today's nuclear threats from Moscow with the Cuban Missile Crisis between the USA and the USSR? I think that the, the goal of looking to history and seeing what we can learn from history is generally a good one and something that we should definitely do here. At the same time, I think it's very difficult to draw parallels primarily because of information that's available to us now as opposed to in the future. Uh, it was you know 30 years after the Cuban Missile Crisis that we learned that we were much closer to nuclear war at the time than anybody thought. And the opposite was true for the Able Archer military exercise in 1983 when at the time everyone thought we were real close to nuclear war and now people think maybe we weren't as close as we thought. Uh, and so time will be sort of a guide on, on that where we won't know for another 20 or 30 years how close 
2022 was to, to nuclear use. Uh, so I think what we should instead try to do for events like the Cuban Missile Crisis is think about lessons learned. Uh, and I think at the time, or what we know now, is there were serious lessons learned about back-channel communication between the U.S. and the Soviet Union that was trying to learn about each other's intentions and make credible promises to one another, which is difficult but potentially doable, in ways that nobody knew were sort of happening at the time. Uh, and so that's, I think, a lesson that we could take from today is hopefully the United States and Russia are talking to each other behind the scenes, and Ukraine and Russia are talking to each other behind the scenes, not necessarily to make a peace deal, but just to sort of know what's going on uh, in ways that are outside of the public's eye. As we all see during the ongoing Russian war against Ukraine, the nuclear weapons are not a tool of the global deterrence anymore. The Kremlin uses a nuclear bomb as an offensive tool to pursue its geopolitical goals and conquer other nations. What this civilized world can do about this? Yeah, I think it's a really important point. There are sort of two contrasting views regarding history of nuclear use. Some people think that nuclear weapons have been used once, and that was Hiroshima and Nagasaki, while others think that nuclear weapons are used every single day because the threat of their use governs the way that, that countries behave. Uh, and I think what that gets at is what does it mean to use a nuclear weapon? Is it more than just the detonation of one of these warheads? And the sort of view that, that you're sort of suggesting that I think makes sense is we should think about nuclear threats as potentially being a behavior that requires some governing. Uh, I think that's really hard. It's hard to govern the way that countries make threats. A lot of times it's done obliquely or, or indirectly. Um, and so I think that that's challenging. But I do think that if we look at historical arms control agreements, even what we have now with things like New START, they include a lot of focus on the material nuclear weapons themselves, counting you know, warheads and missiles, et cetera. But more can be done to think about the doctrines and strategies that countries use for thinking about the use of nuclear weapons. So I might be somewhat pessimistic about our ability to govern or regulate that through an international body. Uh, but I think that states are rightfully paying a lot of attention to the, the ways that countries speak about and think about nuclear weapons independent of their actual explosions. Recently, French President Emmanuel Macron said that France will not strike Russia with nuclear weapons even if Russia will use them first. I think this sounds like a self-defeat and encourages the aggressor. How should we understand this statement from President Macron? Uh, it's funny because it looks like self-defeat, but it's also just consistent with 60 years of French doctrine where this has always been the case. Uh, their policy has always been, unless nuclear weapons are used against the country of France or something very close to our border, our nuclear weapons are not going to be used. Uh, and so there have been sort of fights within NATO for decades about U.S. and the U.K. shouldering most of the nuclear burden, uh, where if NATO nuclear weapons were going to be used or going to be relevant, we largely discount the French. Uh, and so there's sort of historical reasons why that's that's happened. But so I think for, for most uh, political and military leaders, this is not surprising. I don't think that Russia is surprised or this changes their behavior. Uh, I think it's sort of France's way of solidifying or being consistent with what their position in NATO has always been regarding when they will expend what they feel is the, the highest degree of military effort. So I think the expectation was always that if the West's nuclear weapons or nuclear threats were to be involved in this crisis, it would be from the US and or the UK. 
Dr. Gannon, do you think it is real for Ukraine to liberate its Crimean Peninsula in the Black Sea any time during this war? For me, it looks like the entire eight-year-long Russian invasion of Ukraine was maintained specifically to keep Ukraine away from Crimea. The Kremlin considers this peninsula as a jewel in the imperial crown. The Russians also heavily militarized it. Yeah, so I think militarily it, it's hard to take Crimea. Uh, I think that just the geography and the sort of limited roads in and Russia's access to it now in the Black Sea, Russia's in a better position there than, than Ukraine. And I think more importantly, you're right about the way that Russia views it. And I think that it's the last thing that Russia would be willing to give up. Uh, and so I think a situation where Ukraine is able to successfully retake Crimea means that Russia has nothing left. They've lost entirely every part of it. And this is no longer a, a compromise or a settlement, but a total defeat. So I think that uh, instead, Ukraine should sort of see what happens with these other areas that Russia might be more willing to compromise on or to give back and sort of see how negotiations look on that front. Uh, because the one thing that Russia, I feel, is, is most willing to hold on to is the Crimean Peninsula. And I think that that makes things challenging there. On this note, I'm ending this episode of my podcast Ukraine Decoded. My name is Viktor Kovalenko, and my guest today was Dr. J. Andres Gannon, a Stanton Nuclear Security Fellow from the American think tank, the Council of Foreign Relations. Mr. Gannon, thank you for joining me. Thank you for, for the invitation. Your podcast, I think, is, is really great. You're doing some interesting work, so I'm happy to be a part of it. Dear listeners, you can help me in making and improving this podcast by donating to my PayPal at paypal.me slash Mr. Kovalenko. You can also find a direct link for your donations in the description of this episode. Thank you for listening. I'll talk to you in the next episode. So long.